my memory of the internet, I'm sure I probably used the internet before this, but my clearest memory of the internet is using Juno for email and doing the dial up where you have to tell your parents, like, don't call anybody. And then you, you know, or you pick up the phone, you hear the yeah. yeah, well, instant message. Yeah, well, uh, American Online years. too had yeah, that. Yeah, yeah, and AIM, and I remember AIM in college. Oh man, that was. Yeah, you've got mail. I remember people thinking like the internet was still a scam. Like the whole idea was a big scam. Like it's just like, why would you need the internet? You can go to a library. Like it was, it was quite crazy. What I, they, I missed uh, that entire bit because I was here when it when I first got here. It was already like a set thing that people did. Now during the crash. There was like an internet bubble that crashed. People, like, bubble, told, yeah, people kept saying, told you so. Internet was crap. We don't need it. And that brings us to the introduction of our podcast, the Positive Feedback Loop. Positive Feedback Loop. Hello, everyone. Thank you for joining us. This is your co-host, Ray, and joining me is Luis. Hello. And the beautiful Stephanie. Thank you. It's great to be here for another episode. And today, our topic is internet exaggerations. What do we mean by that? We got a conversation going about what we thought of the internet, how we experienced the internet when it first started coming out. And then... And then we started thinking about the different claims that were made on the internet and and how people were so easily convinced that things that aren't real were real because it was online. So, you know, people were? like to say, oh, you know, I saw it online. And then people are like, oh, really? And then obviously over time, people have become more um, understanding that the internet has tons of lies and most of it is complete nonsense. But today we're going to spend some time talking about why people want to believe these things or why people tended to believe these things. So, guys, what was – can you think of one interesting example that you've experienced on the internet? I feel like it was easy, easier for people to be fooled back then, but maybe the tools that people have now to fool others is even stronger. I guess that's – that's the point to make. Yeah, I think if you're thinking about it from the perspective of like spam emails and things like that, which people were more likely to fall for kind of a little bit back then. But now we, it's more codified. The, the the lies, the the structure of lying is much more prevalent, especially with the fact that people can share things much more on social media, which is much more common. And all you do is have a friend post a, a, news, a news article. No one actually reads. Well, that's not true. But most people don't actually read the source of the article, so they just see the headline and in, insert outrage here. And all it takes is for that person to then spread it and continue spreading it. And even if one of your friends happens to read it and says, wait a second, this comes from falsenews.com, you're not going to care because you've right. already spread it. And then it turns viral, and then everyone yeah. get all these likes and shares, different platforms, get a hold of it. Oh, I have an analytic example of what Luis is describing. When I was at MIT, we, when we looked at the analytics, we realized that the number of shares and likes and comments, we'll, we'll just go with just likes. The number of likes that a post would receive on social media was 
a greater number than the number of click-throughs that the news article would get. And that's when we started learning that people would read the headline and maybe whatever the accompanying caption was for that article and say, wow, that's incredible. That's so cool. I want to share it. And they wouldn't actually read the article. So there are a lot of people out there, that the, and, and the analytics show this, that reading the headline is enough for them. If they agree with what the headline says, they're going to share it right away. Or if they are outraged by what the headline says or whatever the emotion is, they're just going to share it. Yeah. So, no, I, I agree, but I think there's two things there. It's possible. I'm just trying to play, I guess, you know. The devil's, devil's advocate. Devil's advocate here. The person might have read the article elsewhere and m- might not that have clicked happened. it on that platform. So that's one case. And the other case, which is I think what you're alluding to, is that they're just trying to signal to their network that, look, I'm interested in this. I think this way. So they're signaling like it's a social signaling 101, basically, that you pick out of like a consumer marketing or consumer behavior yeah. book. Well, and the difference there also to be my own devil's advocate is that when it's coming from MIT News they know it as a reputable source versus just sharing any headline from anywhere without reading it so it's a different context but what I will say now I I do believe there's a lot of fake news out there and there's a lot of erroneous stuff on the internet and a lot of people I think at least in American culture, I think we need to improve our internet literacy and looking at sources. A lot of people do not think about their sources. Even in colleges today, the types of sources that students use to prove a point are just ridiculous. I'm kind of dumbfounded by the fact that you have to look into not just, oh, somebody quoted something I agree with. Great, I can use this as evidence. Rather thinking, well, why does that person agree? Where did they find their information? Are they a secondary source? Are they a primary source? So I'm... And yeah, know. and oftentimes those sources will be, that they'll provide, will take those quotes out of context, yes. making something seem like it agrees with you, when in fact it does the exact opposite. Oh, and yeah. There's plenty of examples of this. We'll come with, especially with medicine and science, people will claim, oh, medical like science now is says good this for thing. you, and they'll just like... Yeah, but it, <laughs> when you look at the article, it actually says the complete opposite thing. Yeah, but what I will say to... to kind of disagree with the fact that I mean you can't disagree with the fact I guess <laughs> to disagree with the opinion yes you can this is the internet <laughs> you can do anything yeah. facts Just throw some fake news is what I say <laughs> but to disagree with the idea that there is so much fake news out there I read an, the an article by what I think is a reputable source the World Economic Forum and uh, the article is called fake news echo chambers and filter bubbles are an exaggerated threat. Here's why. Now, those are three sorts of reasons that we feel like we can't trust the internet as a whole. One is the fake news, which you've mentioned. The other is the echo chamber idea and and filter bubbles. And these are, this is the idea that you only read and see news that you're going to agree with, and you're only making friends that are posting the things that you're going to agree with, and you don't, like, really expand your horizons. William Dutton says, quote, Today, though, many observers are concerned that search algorithms and social media are undermining the quality of online information people see. They worry that bad information may be weakening democracy in the digital age. The problems include online services conveying fake news, splitting users into filter bubbles of like-minded people, and enabling users to unwittingly lock themselves up in a virtual echo chamber to reinforce their own biases. 
But then he says, these concerns are much discussed, but have not yet been thoroughly studied. What research does exist has typically been limited to a single platform, such as Twitter or Facebook. Our study of search and politics in seven nations, and he lists all the nations they've been looking at, like the U.S. and Germany and Spain, uh, and this was January 2017, by the way, says, quote, found these concerns to be overstated, if not wrong. In fact, many Internet users trust search to help them find the best information, check other sources, and discover new information in ways that can burst fil filter bubbles and open echo chambers, end quote. So he's basically saying the, that the idea of this fake news echo chamber is maybe hyped up too much and that the Internet has actually opened our horizons and helped us find information we otherwise would not have. You know, the Internet has obviously given us new ways for us to discover information and knowledge and being able to search through it has obviously given us more power and uh, broader understanding of the world. And I think that having this conversation about fake news and blowing it up and talking about how it's everywhere is actually OK, because at least at least people are aware that there is something like fake news on the Internet. So at least they have one level of criticism or one degree of criticism that they can consider um, while they search on the web. So I think it's okay. I think this whole fake news thing is kind of like a an awareness campaign for the world. I, that's what I hope it is. If I, I'm trying to think optimistically about it, not so, you know, I know that there's fake news, but this campaign is, I think, okay for people to be aware of. So, so I would say that there's something more insidious to the fake news issue, and it's not the fake news itself. Because in truth, the amount of actual fake news that people consume regularly is relatively small altogether. The main issue, I think, or something to think that I feel is much more dangerous is the erosion of trust in journalism that is resulting from fake news. And the idea that fake news is not news that is false and does not have any source that is at all reliable to back it up, but that any news I disagree with and does not fit my personal worldview is quote unquote fake news. And there's is a, a lot of political stuff mixed up in this, and we're not, I'm not gonna go into that. But addressing the main issue, we now have moved into a point where a large chunk of the population believes that all mainstream news, and that includes newspapers that have the highest journalistic standards, at least as we define them. Basically, throughout history, uh, the short history of journalism that exists, the way that those standards have been built up, they exist there for a reason, and that is no longer being trusted by a lot of people. But they are they believe that there is a lot of collusion at the top and that inherent biases are making their way down into the news and that, you know, news are being selectively reported. And that's what fake news means. Whereas the way I see it. And what, what I perceive to be reality, and people can disagree with me on this, for the most part, most of the decisions in what gets reported and what doesn't get reported, yes, there is a level of bias that comes with any editorial team and with any people running a business, but ultimately it's all about getting the making your business grow, right? At the end of the day, it's about what are your incentive structures for a journalistic enterprise. Right. A journalistic enterprise needs to make money. And you make money by getting news that bring views unless you work on a subscription model, which is why the, those journals, those uh, newspapers that have 
the highest ethical standards for the most part live on subscriptions. Wait, hold because on. Because at Luis. that point, that changes the incentive structure. Yeah, well, You're because saying... the incentive structure is awful right now for many of those sources. I mean, what you, you I mean, the subscription model is yet. I want to receive news from you no matter what it is because I know I want just the news. I want pure information that's correct. I want the truth. Whereas others rely on advertisements. And when you rely on advertisements, you're relying on the most traffic you can get. And when you're relying on the most traffic you can get, you start to publish the news that people want to see or that they are more emotionally triggered by or more likely to share, but may not be where it should be. And so then you get news that is sensationalized. And this is kind of my view of why people are not trusting journalism. And part of that problem is... Not that they think that it's fake news, or even that they're claiming it's fake news because it's biased, but that it is biased. For example, there are many news outlets that have actually endorsed, officially, a political candidate. Now, how can a news source like the Wall Street Journal or the New York Times, how can they endorse a political candidate and then claim to be reporting both sides equally? That goes back to Luis's claim where he said they're out to make money. I think that by incentivizing them to make money, which I disagree with, I don't think a journalistic enterprise should aim to make money. I understand that they need to sustain themselves and be able to pay their journalists and get the equipment to be on the air. But I think there could be different ways to do that. But, you know, that's a different topic right now. But sorry, go ahead, Luis. Sorry, I just... I have two things to bring up. One, newspapers uh, giving endorsements has been around for a long time. This is not a new thing. Yes, but that this doesn't make it a, That doesn't make it a right thing, you know, like, oh, but well, it's been around for a while. I don't think that newspapers have a duty to give all sides an equal voice. They right. don't have a duty to give so- if they consider that what you're spewing is false or wrong, they don't have a they don't need to give you a podium to exercise that uh, that speech. Similarly, newspapers have editorial teams, and those editorial teams, which is, they have, you know, op-eds, which are dedicated to giving the opinion of the, edit- of the editors of the newspaper and other individuals. You can have a newspaper that has an editorial team making decisions opinion about pieces. how they feel about things and yep. giving opinions, and also be journal- have journalistic integrity and report everything. As this long is as how that's clear, right? But to yes, a lot of people, always, it's it's becoming less and less clear, especially, and I think we've discussed this before, but in a print newspaper, there is an opinion section and there's a news section. But online, those lines are being blurred because you're seeing articles shared in a modular fashion, shared with their unique resource locators to each article, not curated in the same way that it would be in a print piece. And so it's becoming less and less apparent when pieces are exchanged, especially when you read a headline. You don't understand maybe if it is opinion piece or news at first by the headline that's shared on a Facebook post, for example. It's not only modular articles and things like that. You also have like just memes. You, you put someone's face and you put a quote and then all of a sudden there's an association with that person and with this certain ideology or belief. And that can sway tons of people very easily in fact 
it's probably more effective than a well-written article because they don't have to think that much. And it's, it's just kind of like the lowest hanging fruit that people want. And if it satisfies their existing beliefs, then yes, now I can use this as evidence to confirm anything they want to basically. And I think their for own me, beliefs. a worse offender than memes is infographics. Infographics are plaguing the internet and I am so sick of them because infographics are a really cool looking way of expressing something complicated and that's really nice it's really done if it's done well with good sources i like infographics yeah it's absolutely but here's but what I, actually mm -hmm. happens mm -hmm. people will take some random fact from the internet they'll take a fact that supports their decision without giving any of like the actual background to the or any context to it they'll throw some pictures on it and throw, put a graph on it which is if you've learned anything about data analytics you know that just throwing a graph on things doesn't mean the data is right and then they'll post it on the internet, and it'll eventually lose its original home. People will spread it, and you'll forget where it originally came from. And no one will, and then eventually, even the original source material will be lost. And then you just have this bit of data out there, this contextless data that just has a point. And that point is to give, to push an agenda. And I think these, this sort of stuff, this easily shareable, these snappable uh I'm right moments that people can just throw at people. Because I go every day, I go on the subreddits. And by subreddits, I'm talking about basically it's a forum for those who may not be as familiar with Reddit. I go into these forums of people who have opinions I am 180 degrees opposite of. And I read what they say. And I go in there and I see them writing, hey, I'm having an argument with someone. Can you guys give me talking points so I can win the argument. And I think that is such a toxic attitude because it's give me ammunition and then people will post infographics and they'll post out of context links and they'll post, you know, things that may or may not be fake news or just stuff that's completely out of context. Shareable walls of text that they can use to win arguments. Look, the climate right now, especially, I mean, not, not just in politics, but in all topics, the climate right now, especially in the United States, but across the entire world, is how do I win the argument rather than how can we talk together as people who disagree and kind of understand, well, why do you believe that way? Or, huh, how do you, how do you see it? Or how did you come to that belief? And being open-minded to learn, I mean, it doesn't mean that you're open-minded to change your mind with whatever anybody's going to tell you. It doesn't make you weaker it makes you a stronger person to be aware of the world and want to listen to the world. I mean, this gets back to the echo chamber. Why would you want to live in an echo chamber when... Because it's comfortable. You know, well, yeah, it is, it is. But You're not challenged and you feel like you're right. I mean, you can be... You know, this is one of those things where I feel that humans as a species, we have a biological flaw. And it's that outrage feels good. Outrage but I wouldn't feels, say it feels good. I just it feels good to know righteous indignation is one of the best feelings, and I don't mean that in the sense that like that's something I look for. But I know that when you feel indignant, as in there has been a wrong in this world, and I am in the right, and those people should burn in hell because I know that I have the moral fortitude and the right moral compass to dictate. I have the right in this. And those people are fools. That feeling of being in the right and of hating the other is slightly addictive. And that is like half 
viral stories are just something taken out of context and made to look really bad so that people can think it that is the worst thing in the world. And we have examples of this from every side of the political spectrum. It's very obvious that we have a problem with indignation. We want to be pissed. Governments are trying to they're trying you know to really stop this fake news dilemma. Do you think that we'll be able to or is this something that's just going to continue? I mean, I just read an article that said in Ireland actually is the Irish news uh, a new law proposed in Ireland would make disseminating fake news on social media a crime punishable by up to five years in prison, according to the Irish news report. I mean, this was on the New York Post, so and then again, I don't know. But my point Are you is... claiming it's fake news? <laughs> I, I don't know what to believe. All I'm saying is that they're proposing something so I can look and try to see in the Irish, you know, Ireland... Um, government website and see if this is a real proposal i'm sure it'll if it's like a bill and i don't know how their government sure system works proposal. but i just don't i mean it's but five years in prison and this is not like creating the fake news it's just disseminating it isn't that it's not like you're ideating fake news you're just like well, putting you're making the channels this to, might they might be linking it to libel so fake news a lot of fake news can be linked to a person it's news about somebody and their supposed misdeeds you know and and we see for example fake we saw in the election fake news about trump fake news about clinton when you get to the point you're telling lies or spreading lies about a person i mean number one it's bearing false witness that's one of the ten commandments so it's pretty serious to christians and in america there's a lot of christians so (laughs) you can see eh, take it pretty seriously and then you also have the fact that libel is 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 a legal consideration. So when you're actually being an accessory to spreading really false things about people, and there are people whose whose lives have been ruined by that, and there are a lot of examples of that. What I think that, Luis, you're getting at is not necessarily fake news, but sensationalism. And sensationalism is a little bit different from fake news because it's not untrue in the sense that it's that somebody's saying the total opposite of what's happening. It's just that they're exaggerating what's going on. And this is oh, part of... Oh, I agree of, with you. It, yeah, and I mean, this is part of what you kind of called out, you but know, that's some the problem. news... And you, you said this earlier, that there are some news sources, and I'm going to call one out right now, BuzzFeed. <laughs> BuzzFeed is the yeah. perpetrator of sensationalism. And, you know, Wikipedia... BuzzFeed, oh, <laughs> Wikipedia there's, there's is good at not But it all comes back to making but, that... It, it all comes back to the ad revenue, and that's yes, what people want to see. It's very easy but, to digest. Here's, here's why I we think this is worse. change these incentives. Go ahead. Here's why I think this is worse than just um, sensationalism. It's because it has been mislabeled, and there has been a concerted effort to label sensationalism to be fake news, when that muddies the water a lot. By calling sensationalist, sensationalist articles fake news, and that's just taking into account sensationalist articles, right? But it kind of gave a bridge, a bridge, a bridgehead for people who want to claim that all news that they don't like is fake news. Because now, first, it stops. It starts with this news isn't framed in the right light, so it's fake. I can ignore all of it, even though it could be pointing out a very real thing, and just not giving it perhaps the right the enough context. So now I'm ignoring all of it. Because it doesn't fit with my worldview. 
Now we take it one step further. Now that I consider that the news can't be trusted, even if the news isn't even fake it's or even sensationalized, because I don't trust anything. And Ray, you were getting at this where you don't even trust you don't even trust what you're seeing on the internet, right? You you saw an article and now you're mistrusting of it. And you know what? Yeah, you're right. The New York Post is kind of a tabloid to a degree. For sure. So you you were right to be questioning of it. And I looked up the story that you're talking about, and I'm only getting basically sites that are extremely sensationalist that talk about this. So now I'm questioning is this story perhaps being taken out of context? So it's one of those things where the issue we're facing right now could be compartmentalizing to several different problems, but they all come down to one underlying cause, and it's the, the, the breakdown of trust. Yeah, Luis, I think you're right. It's all about trust. How do we, how do we find consensus? How do we create this trust with, uh, within our society? And with that, Piffles, we are going to take a short commercial break very uh, glad you're sticking around, so please stay tuned. Enjoy the commercial. Thanks. There's gotta be a better way. And now, there is. Introducing the Commercial Tracker 300. Keep track of all your commercials, hold your partners accountable, and even hard-boil an egg in less than a minute. And order within the next 67 years, and we'll throw in a free Commercial Tracker XD. Shipping and handling excluded. That's the Commercial Tracker and the Commercial Tracker XD for only 12 installments of $19.99. Buy today. Welcome back, you beautiful piffles. Thank you for listening to that commercial. And we were talking about internet exaggerations, fake news, and how to develop trust within a community, society, and the world, basically. Um, and... We were trying to come up with our Steph, You had a few examples of like crazy, exaggerated things you found on the internet. You want to <laughs> yes. give some of that and find out? Yeah, go ahead. Well, you know how I love uh, telling stories. What interests me about exaggeration on the internet is that there is a lot of distortion of small news over what I would consider worthy of big news. So in Wikipedia, this is like me kind of quoting the dictionary, so sorry for being so basic, but sensationalism involves tactics such as appealing to emotions, being controversial, controversial, intentionally omitting facts, being loud and self-centered, trivial information is then sometimes misrepresented and exaggerated as important or significant when it's not really. And in Wikipedia, it gives some examples. Uh, examples include press coverage about the Bill Clinton-Monica Lewinsky scandal, the Casey Anthony trial, Tanya Harding's role in the attack of Nancy Kerrigan, etc. Like these these cases that don't impact, they're not like, you know, international A crises. A big deal. They're not, it's right. not like, you know, and, and yet th- those things get new, they're more newsworthy somehow or, or they get more eyes than like health crises. Because they connect to people at an emotional level, at a kind of a place where they can almost relate to. Many people can relate to the idea of infidelity. Many people can't relate to the idea of potentially creating a nuclear bomb and then bombing a country. That's just not like in their daily psyche. It's not It's not part right. of their thought process. Well, so I mean, it's, it's, that, it's that connection that these sensationalists are trying to make in order to 
demote another t- story, which is you know you know very frequently done nowadays. Like you have a really important story, but then it gets shoveled into the ground because you have someone cheating on someone else, or there is some kind of sexual scandal. Well, I mean, sometimes it doesn't even make sense, though. It's not even like I, I do agree with you that if it has that personal emotional level, like infidelity, people and people relate to it. Man, they'll really latch on. They'll get angry. But, you know, there's some that don't even make sense. Like, remember in the presidential debates when there is the man with the red sweater named Ken Bone? And he's uh, sitting, <laughs> yeah, and he's sitting in the town hall debate, remember? Yeah, and we all remember. man, the internet latched on to him, and he had his own yep. hashtag, and he gained a it ton of It wasn't until they followers. found out he was into, I think it was like pregnant woman porn, that the internet basically let go of him. They read some, like, past tweets by him. They meaning like I don't know, the general public, I guess, yeah. and like pulled them out and then turned him into a public enemy. So here's someone who yeah. is just basically a, a, a normal guy. He's just a dude. Dude. Yeah. He's sitting at a town hall and because he wears a red sweater and he just seems unique, the Internet loves him intensely and then hates him intensely. And... It's not like he's going out doing crazy things that are super newsworthy. You know, it's not, he's not a murderer or he's not going around streaking through the streets of Cincinnati or something. He's just a guy who is sitting in a chair. <laughs> and, and I mean, I'll be fair. It was a town hall that was viewed by millions of people. But somehow the Internet exaggerated everything the, the newsworthiness of this person's life. So I thought that was a really interesting example. And, and I, I agree with you. It's, it's an interesting example, and it all kind of comes back down to the idea that sensationalism isn't just, this is something that is going to catch your attention, but it's how much does it make you want to spread it, right? And that's why I think outrage is such a popular emotion, is such, such a strong emotion, because you want to share outrage. Because it's not just, <gasps> I really think there's a problem here. But it's also, I also think other people should know about it so they too can judge and be on my side on this because I know there's good people who will hate this thing. And that's what makes outrage so powerful because it's an immediate call to action. Whereas other things you may be more willing to just enjoy on your own. That's what makes it so viral. Outrage is very motivating. It's you not, want to save the world. If you see a video, there's an example I'm thinking of. If you see a video of someone who is outraged, it won't necessarily make you outraged with them, but it might incite outrage in your reaction to them. And I'm thinking of the humongous episode. <laughs> not humongous, but the man who's, who goes by the name humongous. This guy is getting interviewed uh, about his thoughts on police activity uh, in his area. And this woman who is an activist is filming him being filmed. So he's done with his interview with the press and he's walking away and the woman is filming him with her, her phone, her smartphone, and at the same time asking him, what's your name? Because she disagrees with his stance. And she's saying, what's your name? What's your name? And he doesn't want to tell her his name and he just wants to be left alone. So he says, my name's Hugh. Hugh Mungus. <laughs> Which is basically a dad joke. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and he, he originally, he says in a later interview that he, that he claimed his name was Humongous. Like the reason he thought about that one as his pseudonym was because he's, he considers himself fat. 
He's a larger stature. And so, and, and he's a dad, and he was being interviewed about his daughter. Uh, and so he was just thinking, I'm going to make a dad joke, right? Well, this woman twists what he says and says, human, guess what? You know, and starts twisting what he says to, and starts screaming at the top of her, her, uh, her voice. Who is this woman, a reporter? This, no, this is just an activist who is filming him the whole time she's talking and she's screaming he sexually harassed me and she's just going ballistic on this guy this guy's trying to avoid he's staying calm he's trying to avoid the situation but the woman keeps following him asking him his name and he goes it's it's humongous humongous and he just you know leaves and he's he's just being kind of funny and and cute so everybody in the building as she's still filming there's a lot of other people kind of taking her side. Yeah, yeah, why are you... Because she, they hear her screaming, but they didn't see the actual encounter between the two of them. So they see her kind of following him, still screaming that she's been sexually harassed. When he didn't... Well, there's a, lot of, there's a lot of gravity around yeah. passion and energy and loudness. About, like, they're just gravity. And, especially and about people gravitate harassment. towards it. And there's really no way to latch out of that. You're kind of you're stuck with the momentum that has been created by this yeah. crazy woman. So she posts the video, and then I want to I want to get Luis's reaction too. But in the moment, nobody sees the inter- the first interaction between her and him, and the fact that he did not sexually harass her, and that she's actually harassing him. They only see her yelling, so they're all kind of thinking maybe she's in the right. But when she posts the video, and you actually watch what she does to him, the internet actually starts to hate her, and they have there's this huge public outrage toward this woman to the point that there are very few people on her side and basically all the people who see the YouTube video she's posted I don't know it's actually it was a Facebook video originally but when they watch the video they posted everybody feels outraged toward her because essentially she's harassing this guy forcing him yelling at him to give her his name and then claiming he's sexually harassed her when he hasn't and that gives people this what Louise calls righteous indignation so here the fact is that exaggeration of emotions on the internet your emotions might be evoked but not necessarily in the same direction as the person who's who's emoting originally in the content here's here's i think uh something that we're burying the lead with this was and i won't go into the details of the story because i'm just looking it up now but from what I can read, there was a lot of political connotations on the, the, the underside of this, right? He was being interviewed about a political topic, and the, the person that came up to him was an activist with a political goal. This became extremely viral very quickly and two, in two ways, right? One, she was trying to achieve a goal by inciting, by, you know, by getting people riled up, her attempt to create a level of controversy to help maybe her position. And then you have on the other side the fact that people immediately latched on to this person being an loud, obnoxious individual to make the point that everyone that supports her side is like this. And that's a really fun thing that people do. They'll take an example of one person being crazy and they'll use it to generalize across the board. Yeah, the number of people that I've seen on the internet claiming that there is currently a campaign for the for white genocide and i know i'm getting a little political here but i've seen that freaking sentence that that expression white genocide so many times and yet this is not a thing that's happening in this country 
Like, no one, like, reason, no one is having this talk. Like, no one's saying, hey, why don't we just kill white people? Like, let's just do that. But it's become a story because they, they'll find one or two crazy people or one or two people in any sort of position of power who say something even slightly resembling that. And now you have a conspiracy. You have a problem. You do make a great point, Louise. When reactions happen on the internet, sometimes it's not just the content itself that is exaggerated. For example, a, an exaggerated news headline. It's not necessarily the seed that is exaggerated, but it is how it is shared that then gets exaggerated, the reaction of the public. And like you said, it goes both ways. Even though this woman was harassing this man, and maybe she had her goals, the people defending that man were both innocently just defending that man, but also having their own goals. And so you have this very strange exaggeration of sides around any issue and maybe that's why tiny things get blown up because tiny things are a little more simple than something as complex as a whole hurricane situation where people aren't really sure what's going on but if you take this tiny infidelity and then you spin it to what you want your side to be so I mean I'm agreeing with you I think that people take things and blow them to their sides what really gets me is when this when it just kind of blows out of proportion and stuff and it's just people being angry on reddit basically i'm like okay well let them burn themselves out with this hype but when it has to do with like international aid that's where it kind of gets to me i was reading this article in the guardian that's basically university students giving their opinions about media distortion What really hit me was this college student named Timothy Sanders who goes to the University of East Anglia in the UK. And uh, Timothy says, countries affected by natural disasters that alter their geographical, economic, and societal landscapes tend to receive greater amounts of aid and with less conditions attached than countries experiencing civil wars or terrorist insurgencies that result in similar, if not more severe consequences. Basically, when you have ongoing crises maybe they last several years that are super devastating and need a lot of aid, but they're not catchy enough. They're not newsworthy enough. They don't have the hype. And so the public doesn't pay attention as much and they don't get the aid. Then you have the really short-lived kaboom crises that have a lot of humanizing aspects to them that people latch right on and say, I want to give to that. And so you have humanitarian emergencies that don't get as much aid as, for example, the Ebola outbreak. Or there's an example given by Chris Buckley, who's another college student. He says, for example, the 100-day mass genocide in Rwanda in 1994 was completely devastating, and an estimated 500,000 to 1 million Rwandans were slaughtered, but it didn't receive as much support or aid. That's where it really gets me. It's It's when the exaggeration of things on the Internet are led by kind of the mass public following this viral sharing thread that leads them away from what's really important. Coney 2012. Who can forget Coney 2012? For those listeners who may not know what I'm talking about, just Google Coney 2012. I don't even know what you're talking about. Well, tell more, Luis. Tell more. Coney 2012 was a a viral video that exploded on the internet in 2012 about some some things that are happening in certain regions of Africa that involve child soldiers and the use of children in wartime. 
Right, yeah. Actually, and nice. this video became gigantic for like a very brief period of time. It it had millions of views. Uh, let me actually pull up the actual numbers right now. Yeah, it had 101 million views on YouTube. That's how much has now. That's how much has huh? now. Right? As of October 10, 2017. Yeah. But, I mean, most of these views were within, you know, days. I mean, those videos don't tend to last. I don't long. know, man. 2012, you have five years, so you can't just totally say. But, yeah, I know what you mean. Still, 100 million views is enormous. Yeah. It, it was about people trying to capture a particular individual within a rebel militia group called Lord's Resistance Army. This kind of just goes to the fact that, like, if you can package information in the right way, sometimes... You just strike the gold mine and it gets everywhere and everyone sees it. And even though the video, this video in particular, particular was not the most accurate and oversimplified issues and there were a whole bunch of other concerns surrounding it, all that kind of got shoved to the side because it became a huge sensation for a bit. And I think everyone who has an agenda to push kind of wants to get to that level. They want to get their side, their opinion, their thoughts to explode in the nor in the like national consciousness. And so that's why they hang on to these small things. And it's not so much and I agree with you Steph, I think these small incidents can be ex- blown up to a larger size and be used as ammunition for a side. But I think it's more than just because they are easy to wrap your head around. It has more to do with the fact that it's much easier to prove something you already believe. The barrier to proof for something you already internally think is so incredibly low. Whereas the barrier to prove something you don't believe is gigantic. It's a huge mountain. You need a, you need so much evidence and you need to get along with the person and you need to engage with them for a long period of time. Uh, very uh, Not so long ago, um, uh, the New York Times has a podcast. Uh, I don't like to advertise other podcasts on this podcast, but they do a good show called We've Daily. done it before. <laughs> yes called The Daily, and they had on, they were, they were talking about the son of David Duke, the famous white supremacist, who, after going to college and engaging with individuals who were, uh, who were ethnically Jewish and who had, you know, they, he engaged with them in conversation over a period of about two years, he was eventually convinced that, you know, all of the points he had learned growing up about white supremacy were wrong. And eventually he sent a letter to the, I think it was the Southern Poverty Law Center, which is like a huge thing in white supremacist circles as like the like this, the Antichrist, essentially. And which his father saw and later on called him to make sure he hadn't been hacked because he never told his father. But the fact is, it's very difficult. It took two years of someone knowing someone who was different and who he had previously demonized. So it took him a long time, it took two years. Yes. It took like it took about two years being face to face and debating rigorously with people who he previously demonized to eventually come around to the idea that, hey, you know, maybe Jews aren't the devil. So if the Internet does anything at all is give you just what you want, it gives you what you want. That's if you're looking for anything. You will find it. And if you're looking for stuff like those people who go on the Internet asking people to give them points to refute political opponents, then you'll find it. But then you don't grow as a person because you're not you, you give yourself the impression that you listen to the other side. 
but you don't really. You don't really understand who they are, and you leave it down to these, like, weird mannequins of individuals who have... Uh, who are the, that shri- that shrill person that attacked humongous, essentially. That's who you see as mm. your opposition, and not human beings who are rational and have looked at data, and in their mind, that's what the data says, and what their convictions tell them about what to do with that data. Interesting. I have one final question for you guys, actually. So, we talked about how important it is to you know be able to get the right information online, and how effective it could be to have very extreme ideas. You talked about Coney 2012, where it was quite extreme. Maybe not all true, but it was an effective campaign initially. My question to you is, how far should we be willing to go in order to get society's attention around an important topic? Should there be any fake news? I mean, or should there be any sensationalism or any kind of exaggeration? Should we ever take advantage of internet exaggeration in order to capture an audience because there is a competitive it's very competitive out there if you don't exaggerate a little bit if you are just telling the plain vanilla straight up truth and the story as it really is who's going to read it are we are we going to you know do we have to have a little bit of internet exaggeration to get a point across to get the attention to someone what do you guys think i would say that if you like sleeping soundly at night, you won't partake. I My moral compass is one where I think that marketing is fine. You can market your ideas. You can package them in a way that will make them more attractive to an audience. And that's fine with me. But that's not the same thing as sensationalism. Because sensationalism involves a degree of deception. And furthermore, taking that one step further and then contextualizing an idea so that it represents something that it does not truly actually stand for is just outright lying. So I think that if you want to sensationalize something, you are within your rights to do so. But I personally don't think it's the correct thing to do because honestly, you're just continuing to, if, if, if all it takes for you to put out something sensationalist is to think that you are in the right, then this will never be fixed because everyone thinks they're in the right. You need to start out coming from the point of view of I need to be part of the solution and agreeing to avoid the shadier tactics when expressing yourself on the internet. It's starting to get saturated too. Like there I starting. I mean it's it it is saturated. What is getting saturated exactly? Steph, can you define that? The internet headlines, the news headlines, the the Facebook captions, all the content out there that is sensationalist is starting to be considered as noise. Look through your emails that you get that you get from companies that you know when you do online shopping and you sign up for an email. Look through all of those emails and tell me how many of them say hurry now, act fast, sale ends in 2 hours, these kind of crazy sensationalist almost doomsday <laughs> you know email subjects that are basically and and when I think about email subjects like that, it starts to become noise because number 1, the company is telling you hurry, you're going to lose your chance and yet the company has full control over extending that deadline. So 
they themselves are telling you to hurry for something that, for a deadline they have set. So it is a deception. It, it's like they're trying to be your buddy by telling you the deadline's ending, but it's their deadline, right? So that's super deceiving. And people have caught on to that. It sell, sounds like a, I hate to use the stereotype of a used car salesman because actually used car salesmen are quite nice. <laughs> and there are many used cars. Most of us buy used cars because it's a better deal than a new car in many ways. But the stereotype, the stereotype of somebody just trying to get their goods off the lot to you, uh, it's really crummy. And like Louise said, why would, could you really go to sleep at night after telling somebody, read this now? It's just, it just becomes noise. And as a marketer. This woman lost 80 pounds over five days. Doctors hate her. Yeah. Do it now. Yeah. The do it now and the, and the doctors hate her headlines. And honestly, it may seem like you're being successful because a lot of people will click or a lot of people will like, but in the end, it doesn't necessarily help your business. And one is one example is one department at MIT when I was when I guided MIT's digital strategy. One department used a lot of hype in all of their marketing, and they would even start putting BuzzFeed articles which had no relation to their department. I mean, MIT is an academic institution, and yet they were putting crazy BuzzFeed articles in their Facebook and Twitter posts because they were getting lots of likes and people were sharing them a lot. But what were they sharing? They were sharing the BuzzFeed article, not the, not the brand in any way. And so they gained nothing from it. And so you follow all the, you know, you cause all this hype and you cause these sensationalist headlines and you don't do much for yourself. And I think news outlets also feel like they're being more successful because they'll put something people will click on and read and so they get this idea that they're getting lots of visitors, but lots of people don't even pay attention to the source because the sensationalism of the news is so important of the content that they're just consuming the content and leaving. They don't even remember the source. And so you're doing nothing for yourself. Are you really getting more products off the shelf because you've built up the hype? I don't know. No, I, I totally understand. I guess I want to refine the question because I think it's actually important because there are a lot of things going on in the world. A lot of things going on in the world. Uh, we talked about a little bit of war and things like that. People who are refugees and just like not getting the attention that they may deserve. And I'm thinking, would it would it be okay to you know videotape some traumatic bombing or something and you know, see children getting dragged away. It's not sensational. It's actually real. And this isn't even like fake news. It's actually real news. But then like put it online in a way that creates more hype around it. Is is that wrong? Well, what do you think, Ray? Is the means... What I think is articles and pictures and quotes and all that, that's fine. I think video and what video is able to capture is really, really important. I think that's going to be able to differentiate between the fake news and the Twitter highlights and the pictures and the calling out. But, you know, watching a video of someone speaking or watching a real incident happen is really important. I think, you know, as we get into the future, I know this is a little bit of my uh, personality coming out, uh, looking into VR where you're actually immersed. So you're not like looking at like one screen where a person is recording with their cell phones just in, in one direction, but you're looking around to see what's actually happening in the environment. That's when you start to be 
getting or collecting real data, real information, and hopefully that will reduce the amount of fake stuff that's out there. But um, I look forward to the day that, Ray, you can walk around in a VR environment of the tattered remains of someone's life inside a, inside a war zone. You'll love it. It'll be uh-huh. like, look. <laughs> well, you're putting words in my mouth here. I'm just, I'm, I'm sure yeah. that there's going to be like soldiers walking around or maybe there'll be, um, you know, civilian, I, you know, journalists doing this. I don't think that I'm going to have the, that kind of opportunity. And I, I don't think I, I would worry want to. That, I worry that it is very possible. And there is technology coming up that will make this very possible that it'll become increasingly difficult to discern real video and real audio and we are seeing the beginnings of this and this is there is a lot of technological that's progress that's going point. towards making this possible because hey hollywood wants to be able to have obama give a speech without having obama there right so we're becoming more and more capable of doing this sort of thing and right. the ability of humans to lie to each other is only going to become more powerful so it's you- more important than ever that we become more educated and that we under we create institutions we can trust because it is important that we trust something. An age where we trust no one is an age where society cannot function. 100%. And what's interesting is I just thought about there has to be some sort of institutions we could trust. I agree with you, Luis. Well, it's like... Uh, so that in, this doesn't become our dystopian future. Well, it's like in spy <laughs> videos where they they get them to say something on our tape recorder and then they go up to the voice recognition lock on the door. <laughs> Right. That's, yeah, yeah. That's is that the future? Well, they'll be able to like make us say things that we actually didn't say at all. Like right. even like taking like the millisecond of sound that we generate and then putting it together using AI or some kind of software. It, that already exists. It's already been done. Right, but it's not. Um, it's not about. Sure it's, it's not been about. Done, but no, it's no, no, not it's like not. to the point where I can just take them and just do it easily in a way that's like what I'm saying is. There's going to be more tools, and I, I understand that, like, for example, uh, you brought up Obama, and they'll be able to create the video of Obama saying a speech, but it's not, um, I don't think that's available to each person. It's not like a free thing I could do right now. No, it? but it's become, that technology exists, and it's becoming more accessible. Oh, yeah. For sure. And it's that's, only going to become more accessible in the next 100%. few years. Yeah, when I say future, I don't mean like 100 years down the line. I mean like months and years. With that, my wonderful Piffles, thanks for tuning in and staying on throughout this episode. It was really fun. I want to thank you all again. Like This has been a really cool experience working with Luis and Stephanie. We're having a lot of fun. We hope you are too. Again, we want you to check out our Facebook. We are there. We're on SoundCloud. Um, we're on Stitcher. We are now currently on Google Play as well. And, of course, iTunes. So positive feedback loop. Don't forget it. Love you guys. Thank you so much. And as always, stay crazy. Hello, stay crazy. Mantente loco. Manténganse locos.